Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Antiques Roadshow airs Monday nights at 8 on WITF TV. It is the public TV show that has the largest audience across the nation and here in central Pennsylvania. That's because the show combines history and curiosity with something so many people can relate to antiques or family heirlooms and wondering about their value. Today's Smart Talk is the radio version of Antiques Roadshow. Only it will take a little imagination. David Cordier, president and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals, is with us today, and we hope to have some fun with this. You can this is a rebroadcast of Smart Talk. We're not taking calls this hour, but we welcome your thoughts at WITF.org. Uh, smart talk at WITF.org with a brief description. David Cordier, President and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisal, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. I've been looking forward to this. We actually had to cancel or postpone yeah. because we were supposed to do this before Christmas, but we had uh, a terrorist arrest here in central Pennsylvania, so that's why we've, we've had to push it back. I'm going to get to what have been some of the items that have been sent in already because uh, we've gotten 15, 20, something like that already. And I don't know if we'll be able to get to all of them, but uh, we'll do that here in a few minutes. But I wanted to ask a very basic question. The word antique or what is an antique? You know, it's one of those things that I got to thinking about it and I was thinking, you know, it's one of those things that people look at and think they know what it is. But if you ask them to define it, they may not be able to do that. How do you define what is an antique to you? Well, I think the first point to make is that there's actually uh, lots of different definitions, and often it, it depends on who you talk to. But there's a couple sort of common d definitions, and one is uh, anything that's over 100 years old. And I think it's the U.S. Customs Department that determines that based on imports. Anything over 100 years old is, by the federal government, uh, determined to be an antique. Um, nowadays, though, there's a lot of things that are close to 100 years old that, frankly, you know, things from the 20s and 30s that technically are probably antiques, but most people would probably call them vintage as opposed to really antique. Um, so those terms vintage and antique sometimes get mixed, mixed together and, and, you know, they overlap and it's hard to define. One of the other points in time, though, that's, that's I think, relevant is that uh, the year about 1820, 1830 was the time that really th items, material, objects uh, started to be more mass produced. So anything before like 1820, 1830 uh, is for the most part handmade, one of a kind, very unique. So uh, most and many, I should say, collectors of what would, we would call antiques are often looking for items from before that period. Uh, because, again, they're antique. By the late 19th century, there were f furniture factories all over the country. Most furniture that we see these days that we call antique is actually mass-produced. And it used to be that, uh, from what I've I've read, is that antiques almost were exclusively, exclusively referred to as furniture and art. Correct. And that's the thing that, especially these days, uh, antiques is, you know, most people, when, when they call us or when they, they start talking about antiques, like you said, they, they talk about ant, uh, furniture and art. And actually, the value of, of antiques and collectibles, that's another term, of course, uh, most of the value these days is more in the non-furniture and the not so much. There is a lot of value in art, but furniture is actually one of the antiques that uh, has really not 
certainly appreciated it all and in many cases has de- depreciated, especially over the last 25 or 30 years. And I attribute that to the fact that m- many people are not decorating with antiques anymore. Back in the um, you know 40s through the 70s, um, there were a lot of people that were going out to auctions, antique shows, flea markets, looking for antique furniture. At that point, something 100 years old or so, you know, late 19th, mid to late 19th century furnishings and decorating their home with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sort of a classic example that I use uh, in describing what's going on with that is uh, a spinning wheel. Uh, back when I got into the antique business in the, uh, the early, late 70s, early 80s, uh, you know, having a spinning wheel in your home as part of your antique collection was sort of like uh, you had to have one. Everybody had to have one. And back then they were selling for about $400. Uh, you could buy them at auction for two two fifty. Retail was 400 if they were in good condition and looked nice. Nowadays uh, we sell spinning wheels at auction for $50. So, yeah, my my in laws have a spinning wheel in the yeah, room yeah. now that I think about yep, it. Yep, and, and you can go home and break the news That's to them. Right. Yes, That's exactly right. Well, yeah. I'm going to get to these in just a moment because I know that the people are saying, Scott, shut up and get to the item. Okay, okay. Uh, but what is hot nowadays? Uh, what really is hot, it, it, and people ask us that all the time, and really it's not a, a specific category. Uh, there, I, I should correct that. There are some specific categories. One of the, and, and in actually in furniture, the the specific category is mid-century modern items from you know like the 40s through the early 70s that are can be uh, attributed to some a specific designer um, who may not have fabricated the piece of furniture but designed it for a. Uh, a company who then mass produced it. Anything in that range can be, you know, in that genre can be uh, pretty pretty valuable. And there is a lot of demand for it. Danish modern furniture is another area that is very desirable. And again, if it's a sort of a generic Danish modern dining room set, you're talking in the thousands. If it's, if it's by a particular designer who, again, did not make it but designed it for a furniture company, uh, it can be in the tens of thousands. So um, so those are just a couple things. Other than that, really what it is, I think, is that uh, as the collecting um, community has aged and uh, has more resources to buy things, uh, and those especially that have been collecting for years, are looking for sort of the cream of the crop. They're looking for the real special. So, for instance, a carnival glass dealer or collector uh, isn't going to buy the twenty, fifty, hundred, two hundred dollar carnival glass anymore. They want the three thousand, two thousand dollar piece of carnival glass, and will pay that for those extra special rare items. But what's happened is that the mid range and what we call the lower range in value items in most categories. The, the prices have dropped quite a bit. All right, let's get to some of the items that have been sent in. Uh, I promoted this on the air and on our website over the past few weeks. Ask uh, some of our listeners to send in uh, photographs of their items. It's easier for Mr. Cordier to uh, look at a photograph and uh, provide. And by the way, this is a rough value. This is not you know something to take to the bank, put it that way. Yeah, and actually what, what I might want to add there is that it's, it's import, a couple things are important. Number one, um, this is not the Antiques Roadshow. Right. That is a television show, um, and we don't want to confuse anybody with thinking that this is the Antiques Roadshow. Uh, this is simply a, a – not simply – 
a very important radio show, uh, and we're discussing valuing some antiques. But uh, to address the issue of value, um, generally these what we call verbal opinions of value um, must be taken to a degree with a grain of salt. Um, and what we normally do is we give ranges. So when we look at something, we don't say, oh, that's worth $100 or that's worth $1,000. We might say that's worth 50 to 100 or 800 to 1200 And we're simply giving you an opinion based on our, my experience um, of what something might bring in a, in a sale, uh, probably more than likely an auction or a private sale. These are the, the ranges of value. So um, yeah, you do want to be very careful with that. And I always say to people, because uh, we go out and do a fair amount of what we call appraisal clinics, where we go to nonprofits and churches and that, and uh, they get groups together and we discuss things. Um, basically, um, they uh, what, what we want to make sure is that people do not take any action based on the numbers that we're giving them. Right. Right, so, right. Just give them, it's a ballpark figure. Right, we're having yeah, some fun just, here yeah, today. Exactly. All right, let's start with the rope bed. And the reason okay. I'm going to start with this is because uh, I, I think it was Rhea who sent this in. Right. That this was the very first the first email I got uh, last month. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, actually we have a picture of this on our website, WITF.org. It's a child's rope bed from the first half of the 19th centuries made for my third great aunt, Margaret Blust. She was the eldest child of Dr. Joseph Blust, Sr., the first and longest practicing licensed physician in Harrisburg, uh, also the granddaughter of Martin Renninger, who served as part of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and under Henry Clay. The bed passed to her youngest sibling. Eventually, the bed was handed through the family to my maternal grandfather. Both he and his younger brother slept in this bed when they were small children. My grandfather also told me that the bed was loaned to various families in the neighborhood on Evergreen Street in Harrisburg for the use of their children during the 20s and 30s. Now, she has a lot of information. And before you, you know, provide like a, a rough estimate there, is that valuable to have uh, information like that? Well, it can be. Um, let, let's maybe go back, though, just a second and, and let people know a little bit about what we're talking about when we say a rope bed, because a lot of people don't know what that is. Uh, what a rope bed is, is if you can visualize a modern bed with a headboard, fort, footboard, and a frame, and around the edge of the frame are some nubs, uh, little nubbies. And basically what a rope bed is, is they would literally weave rope back and forth uh, in a crisscross pattern on the bed. And then they would uh, make a, um, a mattress out of usually hay or some other kind of material and sew it together and then lay that on this rope webbing. And that's what, what folks would sleep on. Uh, rope beds are, you know, early 19th century, late 18th century, that, you know, like 1810, 1780, 1810, up through the late 19th century. Uh, I'm imagining they were still made even in the 20th century, in the 20s, because it was a very inexpensive way to make a bed and use a bed. Rope beds, unfortunately, unless they are of significant uh interest to a collector and what would make them interesting, that would be probably the painting on the bed. Uh, most of these beds were made of pine, usually not with high headboards, you know, medium size, maybe uh, four feet high, four and a half feet high headboards. Uh, if they were grain painted or paint decorated with figures and all kinds of interesting things, that would make it, they, that would probably make them more valuable. Uh, I inspected the picture of the rope bed that, um, 
uh, Caitlin sent in. Caitlin. And um, that bed, to my eye, looks like it has been repainted. So uh, now it may not have been, but it it looks like it probably had been, mainly because I can see other layers of paint underneath. And I think she mentions that it might have been a cobalt blue originally. Uh, To be honest with you, this is going to sound harsh and very disappointing, but uh, beds generally like that, you're looking at maybe $20, $30. We sometimes recommend to people that they donate them to charity, then they could sell them for something for for their company. All right, let's move on to the Fisher Boy Pain. This was a painting purchased by my late wife's grandfather in 1903 as a wedding gift for his bride. According to a portion of a label still visible on the inside of the frame from the Veerhoff Galleries in Washington, uh, Henry Oakey, 1821 to 1910, was born and trained in Germany and worked as an illustrator and designer himself as one of the nation's leading portrait painters. He painted many eminent social and political figures during more than half a century in Washington and is represented in collections at the White House, the Defense Department, and the U.S. Capitol, amongst others. Uh, so this is an old painting. It's called Fisher Boy. Yep, Fisher Boy. It looks like an uh, oil on canvas. It says oil painting, circa 1903. Um, and it's about 26 inches wide and 39 inches tall. So this is a fairly significant size painting. Um, and really, we can actually tie this into the bed a little bit because you would ask about, well, is prov- what we call provenance, history of ownership use, who slept in the bed and that sort of thing. It also rela- That issue can be important, uh, but it has to be generally some relation to somebody that is historically important and usually beyond the local community. So you're looking for the most part when provenance becomes important is when it's a national type of a thing, a president, a senator, a, a, a soldier, somebody that has a lot of, imp- you know, a lot of no- uh, uh, notoriety in some way, shape, or form is, or is known. Um, this particular artist, I did do a little bit of research last night and really did not find any results, what we would call auction results or sale results. Um, definitely a good painting. The painting is, is great. Uh, the provenance of, of who the artist is or the, the biography of the artist is, is excellent, excellent. But I didn't really find any, any information about him other than a, you know, a couple of very low-end uh, pieces of art. I can tell you this, and I, I will give a value on this, but uh, generally with portraits, and keep in mind, there are literally millions of portraits floating around in people's barns, in their basements, in their attics. That is one thing that generally people will not discard, portraits of ancestors. A lot of them can be photographs. They can be full-blown paintings. They can be whatever. And there's quite a few people, actually, that are in some way related to famous people. That is not uncommon. We, we see that fairly frequently. Um, but basically, what you're looking for in a portrait is, is the artist famous? famous? Like, is it a Thomas Eakins or is it some very well-known artist? Andy Warhol would be a good example uh, in a more modern age. Or is the sitter, meaning the subject, uh, somebody that's important? And when you put the two together, famous artist, famous subject, you got something of, of, fairly, of significant value. If you have a subject that is not so important, like a fisher boy, because we don't know who it is, um, then you, even though you have what I would consider a medium level of interesting artist, it's not quite the magic you're looking for in, in portraiture. 
And of course, the other end of the spectrum is if you have somebody that you don't know who it is in the in the painting, and the artist is, and it's not signed, and you don't know who the artist is, then you have something running in the few hundred dollars, literally, even if it's from, you know, a hundred years ago. This particular painting, um, and and of course, you also have to add into all this the aesthetic appeal of right. the, of the piece. This is a good looking painting. A good looking painting. Good looking young man, um, and so it's it's a nice a nice uh, a nice package, if you will. I'm going to probably say that that is pr- worth the value of that might be in the five to seven thousand range. Okay, I'm writing this down. By the way, folks, if you hear papers rustling, that kind of thing, like you normally wouldn't hear, we're moving around a lot here with <laughs> a lot of this, just like they would on antique roadshows. So, uh, kind of disregard that if you can. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is David Cordier, president and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals. And that's what we're doing. I shouldn't say we. That's what he's doing. I'm just uh, kind of the messenger here. Uh, If you have something you'd like to describe over the phone, give us a call. This is a rebroadcast of Smart Talk. We're not taking calls this hour, but we welcome your thoughts at WITF.org. We've received a number of emails over the last few weeks with photographs, and that's kind of what we're going through now. But if there's something you could provide a good verbal, description of 1-800-729-7532. All right, uh, Dave, I want to go to the grandfather clock from uh, Mindy. It says, my father bought the clock in 1971 as a present for my mother. I believe he said it was approximately 200 years old at the time. There's no signature on the face, and the little knob appears to be bone or ivory. You did get a picture of this one. I did. What do you think? Well, um, you know, what I think I'm looking at here is uh, probably an English tall case clock, probably from about 1810 to 1820. Uh, Usually the English tall case clocks are wider uh, than the American tall case clocks. Uh, What it is is it's an eight-day clock, meaning that you wind it once a week as opposed to a a, uh, 14-hour clock that you would wind once a day. Um, clock like this uh, looks like it's in good condition, probably running. Uh, I'm going to estimate the value on that maybe between 2000 I'm sorry, uh, to 2500 would probably be the value on that clock. Beautiful clock. Uh, and, the, of course, the family history, which we call sentimental value, only adds to the, uh, to the charm. All right, Hummels. Hummels, we had, uh, who is this, Pat, sent in uh, some nativity scene Hummels. Uh, he said uh, he's attached three pictures of the baby Jesus that is in my Hummel nativity set I inherited from my uncle that was a priest. Uh, ask around for years at antique shops. No one has ever seen this particular piece. But uh, Hummels are quite common. But what about this one? Okay, Hummels are common, and uh, meaning that they're, they were very well collected and continue to be well collected. There's also Hummel Collector Clubs, lots of reference books on Hummels, tons of stuff online. Uh, this particular Hummel um, has an older mark on it from uh, about 18, I'm sorry, 1940 to about 1959, which is called the full B mark. There's actually about eight to ten different marks that are on Hummels, and those are used to date them. Um, the uh, this particular Hummel here uh, is probably worth forty to fifty dollars. Uh, the nativity set, however, uh, has a little more uh, interest, and as as a set, is probably in the nine hundred to a thousand dollar range. Why is that? 
Well, the sets are, you know, you're, you're talking there where you probably have a crush. You probably have, you know, another eight to ten figures. And somebody went to the trouble to put the whole set together. Uh, and because of the holiday relationship with, with the nativity set, uh, people do collect them and like them. And they get them out once a year. Uh, don't have to keep them in a curio cabinet all year round. So uh, we find they sell usually in that range. That is something I've noticed, that there are a lot of people who are now collecting, whether it be vintage or antique, Christmas decorations. That is one of the uh, areas that is very, very collected. Um, one example is we sold uh, a set of 12 glass Christmas lights for, tw- I think there were 12 or 15 of them. Uh, for $1,200 in one of our auctions a little before ho- the holidays. Um, so they are very collected, Santas, Christmas lights, bubble lights, all that material, uh, glass balls, uh, but they do have to be old. And a lot of the newer th- items that you buy in Christmas shops are emulating the old ones, so you do have to be a little bit careful that you know you know what you're looking at. All right, let's take a phone call. We have Sally uh, is on the air. She's from Gettysburg. Sally, you're on the air. Hi. So I have a picture. It's a chocolate picture that has been in my family forever. We know who passed down to who. Um, it's dated 1734. It's porcelain. It's fine porcelain. You can see through it. Um, but it doesn't have a frost hole. So I was wondering if it's actually not a chocolate picture, and that's just what our family has called it. Now, chocolate pitcher, okay. I have to admit, I I'm, that's not something I'm familiar with. And I'm keeping you on the line, Sally, in case uh, uh, Mr. Cordier has any questions for you. Yeah, and okay. uh, by a cho- – usually we call them chocolate pots, not pitchers, but that's – you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about. Um, and that has a lid on it? Uh-huh. Okay, so it's like a tall uh, – in the shape of a coffee pot, but it's a little bit taller, a little bit skinnier um, pot. Yeah, okay, chocolate pot. And and you're saying, does it have any marks on it at all? It does. It's dated on the bottom, 1734, and um, I can't remember the maker, but it, it's painted. Okay. But it doesn't have a hole in the lid to stir it, so I was wondering if maybe it's not, in fact, a chocolate pot. Well, the the number on the bottom can mean many things. Um and in porcelain, I would, and if it's real fine porcelain, I would suspect that that would be a mold number as opposed to a date that it was made. Okay. Um, and a lot of the later chocolate pots from like, you know, mid-19th century, I would say to, you know, the 1920s or 30s because they were still making them then, uh, do not have a, a hole for the stir. They're just, you know, they would just put the chocolate in and then poured it out. So it wasn't really stirred, or they might have taken the lid off to stir it, but you don't see the hole in them. So. Any idea what that could be worth? Uh, porcelain chocolate pots. Sometimes they're sold in sets with cups and saucers. Do you have any of those? I have four. You have four. Okay, depending. And you know, we do have. We know who it was owned by back to 1840. 1840s. Okay, well that that's uh, you know that's that's got some good age to it. Uh, I'm going to probably say you know without really looking at it that is always difficult, but I'm going to say maybe you know eighty to one hundred and twenty dollars. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much for your call. All right, Dave. Let's move on to the stag, the European stag. This is a bronze sculpture. John sent this in, a bronze sculpture of a European red deer. It's about twenty-four inches high and eighteen inches wide. 
any idea of value or rarity? Sure. Uh, basically, what this is, is we would call this a bronze sculpture. And uh, based on the picture, I'm determining that it is bronze. There is an outside chance that it is not bronze and that it's another material, which we call spelter, which is sort of a soft pewter type of material. Um, and if it's of, made of that material, then it would not be considered a bronze and would not be of the value that I'm going to discuss. Um, but basically, uh, this, this piece of uh, this bronze sculpture is what we would call it, is by... Hippolyte, I think I'm saying that correctly, Heisler, uh, a German-French uh, artist, 1828 to 1871 when, was when he was uh, living and mostly worked in France, well-known for his animal sculptures, which ties in, of course, to the, to the stag. Um, and I'm going to estimate the value on this between 1500 and 2000 Really? Yep. I mean, I act surprised because I, it is a very nice-looking piece. Right. I mean, it I, is nice, yeah. With bronzes, you know, the, the quality of the detail affects values fairly significantly. So if it isn't, uh, and that one looked a little not as defined as it could have been, uh, but actually bronzes were produced in multiples. Uh, in fact, the bronze, bronzes, if, if you will, was one of the early efforts to, to sort of take art to the masses uh, because a sculptor could make a bronze uh, mold and make dozens of them and then sell them. And so that was one of the early ways that uh, the common folk, if you will, could buy art. Um, so they're actually not as rare as most people believe, and sometimes they're not as valuable. Uh, but there's also the other end of the spectrum where an artist might have made two or three of the same bronze only, and they're numbered, and uh, they can be in the, you know, Tens, fifty, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands. Mm. All right, let's take a phone call now from Mary in Harrisburg. Mary, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a hand. Well, I have a custom-made cedar chest uh, from Lewis Graver at Kaufman's Country Estate in Big Bay, Michigan. He helped to finance the construction of the Empire State Building, and um, it was given to me when I was at, at college in um, the city of Marquette, and um, it's in very good condition. Um, one of the small wooden wheels that was on one of the corners has broken off, and there's a little bit of a scar in the top, like there's a bit of cracking in it, but it's made of solid cedar, um, I'm not looking at it right now, but when you open the lid, you can see the brass plate naming the company in New York City that made this for him. Okay. You can, you can look at the front of it, and you can see the brush strokes saying L.G. Kaufman, box number five. So what do you think, Dave? That's, that's fascinating that you have been able to nail down all that uh, information. Uh, Cedar Chest, as a rule... Um, I, frankly, almost every, and, and our company is in various houses, estates, and we go to do appraisals and everything. We might be in, you know, four to six, maybe even eight different homes every week. Um, so we're in a lot of houses, and we see cedar chests, sometimes many of them in the same house, consistently. Uh, they were pretty much of a staple uh, in the, you know, the 20s through the 40s. Uh, some would say they might have been used as hope chests for marriages and that sort of thing. But uh, So they are common. 
uh, but there are different grades and different qualities. Uh, the fact that yours was custom made for someone, I think, adds value. Um, I'm going to say that you know the common ones that we see a lot of are anywhere from you know 80 to 120. I think yours might be more in the two to 300 range, um, depending. Well, um, I I apologize for not mentioning it sooner, but to my untrained eye, the quality of the theater looks to be very good, and it's about the chest is made of solid cedar. Right, right. And it, it's like it's like half inch or half or five eighths inch thick cedar. Right, and right. Real thick, the, heavy. Yep. Yep. So two, yeah. Two, and, and the last I saw of the cost of uh, cedar veneer, the value just if I were to contemplate such a thing, that would be ghastly. But oh dear. Anyway. All right. Thanks for your call. I don't. It sounded like Mary was hoping for a little more than two or three. That that also is a not an not an uncommon uh, situation that we deal with. In fact, we are one of our areas of expertise is disappointing people, um, <laughs> and we do that uh, as as politely and as as softly as possible uh, because it is disappointing. And a lot of times, um, you know, things people have have been. Uh, embellished by other generations, and by the time they roll down to the to the folks that are now in their twenties, thirties, or forties, uh, there's this sort of cachet that has been built around something, and often it's uh, you know embellished significantly. Right. Frankly, and we're not saying that is the case no, with Mary. No, just no, uh, no. explaining that. No. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's let's go to Bill and see where Bill is located here. I, I got. Uh, my email just to cover up Bill's name. We'll just go to Bill. Bill, you're on the air. Hey, thanks. Lebanon. Uh, you're in Lebanon, I have right? a uh, a um, graphite drawing of Salvador Dali that he actually sat for by Ken Harry. It's about 20 by 30. Okay, yes, I can jump right in on that. I, uh, I am familiar with Ken Harry, um, and, uh, of course, Salvador Dali is the... the foremost surrealist, Spanish artist, um, and uh, so it's a graphite drawing. So is it like a portrait? Cause, yeah, yeah it's a portrait. Ken it's Herring a, or... a, a chair, and uh, okay. Ken even included a little story that he had put a surrealistic bottle of Vichy water in there, and what Deli commented on, I also have a photograph of him right. actually doing the drawing. So is this K- Ken Herring or Keith Ken Hare? No, it, it's Ken Herring, I believe. Okay, I thought um, it was Perth Amboy. Okay, area. I thought it was Keith Herring. It might be Keith. It might okay, be Keith. okay, um, and he's the guy that does those stick figures and and all that other stuff. No, no, no this no. guy is a he's a portrait artist. Okay, okay, um, I I actually might even be familiar with that particular piece of art. Yeah, uh, you can imagine that um, Salvador Dali was a very large painter. And I do want to mention at this point that many of his prints that were circulated in the 60s and the 70s are actually not real. Right. Um, what was You're probably familiar with that, but a lot of yeah. them were signed by, uh, by someone else, or they, they blank pieces of paper were signed by Dolly, and then they printed them later in later years. Yeah. So you have to be very careful. There are some uh, books on that that can help you guide you there. Right. Um, I actually have photos of Ken... With Dali, right. you know, right. as he drew him, yep. you know. Yeah, I'm going to say that that piece might be worth two to three thousand, okay. um, somewhere in that area. 
That's uh, nice depending on the size and, and all that. And of course, the provenance is very important to have. But if you have that, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's probably in that value range. Hey, yeah. thank you very much for your call. Yeah. Got some. Uh, we're getting a lot of phone calls and a lot of uh, emails here, but uh, I want to go back to uh, one of the original ones that we received, Dave. Uh, this is from Renee in Camp Hill. The Lunt, and I assume I'm pronouncing that correctly, Lunt st- Sterling Silver that was her aunt's four knives, four salad forks, four spoons, a butter knife, and a sugar spoon. Right. And uh, basically here what we have is some what we call sterling flatware. Flatware as opposed to hollowware. Hollowware is bowls and candlesticks, etc. Flatware is for eating utensils or serving pieces. Uh, this Lund sterling uh, is uh, probably f- was from about 1961. Uh, it's the Alexandra pattern. Um, and I'm going to estimate the value in the two to $300 range. Most of that value, I will tell you, is because of the the content of the sterling, Uh, in fact, because it's an intrinsic metal. Um, The other point I want to make quickly is that uh, when you're looking at your flatware, um, we we all have it in our house, sometimes multiple boxes. Uh, There is a significant difference between something that is sterling. Sterling determines it's 92.5% silver. The rest is other metals to harden it. Uh, and that versus items that are silver plated. If your flatware does not say sterling on it, it probably it is not going to be sterling. And the plated sets usually range anywhere from you know for full sets of service for twelve full box full of stuff. Uh, you're looking more in the you know the fifty to hundred dollar range. So there is a big difference there. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're working behind the scenes here. David Cordier is anyway uh, president and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals. This is a rebroadcast of Smart Talk. We're not taking calls this hour, but we welcome your thoughts at WITF.org. If we don't get to write them, we'll try to get to as many as we can, so we'll make it quick. Uh, Let's see. I have one here from Carol. Carol actually sent this in. She said she found this sign. When we first moved into our home over 30 years ago, I believe the sign hung outside at some time. It shingled with what looks like a gold leaf. As you can see, it's in excellent condition. The sign is, it says, American Railway Express. I don't know if you can tell a whole lot by that sign. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, what you have here, of course, is the the Railway Express was a... uh, a uh, transportation company, and they did all kinds of train transportation. I believe they also did truck transportation at one point. Um, and signs are very desirable. People love signs, and uh, all ages, shapes, sizes—they, you know, they're, they're very collectible. And I think part of that is people decorate, decorate with them, so that that makes it nice. Uh, your sign here, um, and you're saying, I believe that that is wood. Did she say or she, she, she didn't shingled? She didn't say really say it was wood. Okay, okay. It looks uh, wood. Yeah, often they're they they are either in metal or they're in wood. If it's wood, then it's earlier uh, than the than the metal ones. And I'm going to say that's probably worth anywhere between four and six hundred dollars. Really? Yep. Okay. Probably from the, the you know the the early te- late teens, early twenties type period, maybe even up to the thirties. All right, let's go to Ruth in Dillsburg. Ruth, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Go, go ahead. Um, I have, uh, well, two lamps. I believe they're ceramic. The one lamp I have, and it's relatively tall, sitting on what I think is a, a bronze or metal base, but it's, it, it, they're textured. The one specifically I'm talking about is very elaborate. It's got a white elephant that comes out 
I mean, it's not a smooth surface on the lamp portion, uh, and it seems ori- and it's oriental. And it's like looks like it's telling a story. It's hand painted, and it's it's amazing. It's my grandmother, and it's got an an, elab- an enormous amount of detail on it with figures of 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 of, of what appear to be hairless oriental men and animals and but this elephant really sticks out on the side and so do the figure so do the the, the human being figures there it's like three-dimensional the other lamp is uh got a live oh well not live but it's got a um dyna, um a dragon a ceramic dragon on the base is made with the lamp yeah, that's, it does sound Asian. Right, right. Are, are these oil lamps or are they electric lamps? They're electric. They're electric lamps. Okay. What you might have actually is um, uh, two vases that were mounted as lamps. That uh, makes sense. Yeah. What, that was a common uh, thing. Once electricity was sort of became more commonly used, and I'm going to guess that that was in the, the late teens, you know, eight nineteen. 15, 20, 30 in, in that region, and even up to the 50s, uh, what uh, the ladies would do when they were decorating their homes is they would find an old vase, they'd take it down to the lamp man who would get some mounts on it and turn it into an electric lamp. It actually uh, had, at one point, uh, a shade from the Lemoyne lamp shop. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, <laughs> I knew the Lemoyne lamp shop years ago. Yes, so that's that's probably... In the seventies or eighties, even so, the shade itself, the lamp, I think, came over from Poland with my grandmother. Okay. Causes. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's okay. So you know what you might have, and and you know we have lo- we have found valuable vases that were mounted as lamps because the the folks taking them to the lamp man did not know really what they had. Uh, most of them are going to be in the hundred to two hundred range, unless for some reason your vase is real special and real rare. Um, and that's a, a possibility, but a little bit remote. Uh, but I would have them checked out. But I'm going to say one to two hundred each, uh, pending further inspection. Hey, Ruth, thank you very much for your call. Let's go back to uh, one of the emails, Mary Faith from Lancaster. Do you have this one? This is uh, the uh, finely worked cork, and the title is Asian. I have no idea what it says and depicts. I took the best photos I could. I'm most interested in knowing whatever your guest can tell me about it, including his estimation of its value. Right. You have that one? I do, yeah. What we have here is a, uh, we call them cork carvings. Um, They're basically uh, two-dimensional carvings in uh, in a shadow frame of scenes, uh, again, carved of cork, of course, literally cork. Um, We see these frequently. Um, They're still made. Uh, if you go into any uh, Asian uh, souvenir shop in any of the bigger metropolitan areas, you'll see them. Um, and they're basically tourist items for the most part, and they were tourist items even when they were made in China uh, or Japan back in the uh, you know the early 19, uh, 20th century. So generally, they're going to have fairly low value, maybe $20, $30. That all depends on size, though. If they're large and very elaborate, uh, the one I'm looking at looks like it's probably a little bit smaller, um, but generally not a whole lot of value. All right. How about uh, Tracy? Tracy has the decanter. Tracy has the decanter. Let, um, me, let me read the description because she provided a description. Uh, my family believes it was acquired from my great-grandfather sometime in the 1930s. My family originated in Brooklyn, New York, where my great-grandfather did maintenance work for a family. We believe it was given to him by his employer sometime in the 1930s, although that's a guess. My mother was born in 1954, and she 
knows the decanter predated her birth. When my family moved to Harrisburg in 1971, the decanter made the move with us. Okay. Um, basically, what we have here uh, is obviously a decanter, and we call this silver overlay. Um, silver overlay is where they would actually take a fairly heavy piece of silver, shape it, form it, and then apply it to a glass piece. Uh, silver overlay has been done to art glass, decanters, perfume bottles, pretty much everything. Distinctly different from what we would call silver resist, and silver resist is where it's actually just a silver paint. So it's important to make that differentiation. Uh, your decanter here is probably from the, you know, maybe from the early teens, turn of the century, early teens. If you look hard at, at the rim, usually near the base, you're going to see a sterling mark. Uh, you should see one. And um, from there, uh, basically the value for the decanters maybe 150 to $200. Yeah, she said that uh, the bottom of the decanter and the bottom of the stopper bear an etching on the glass that appears to be 92. Right. But, uh, so you said one to 200? 150 to 200. Okay, 150 to 200. Okay, let's take another phone call from Lisa in Burnville. Lisa, you're on the air. <clears throat> Good morning. Good morning. You're on the air. Well, Go ahead. Um, would you? I have uh, what I went to the Air and Space Museum in Seattle a little time back because I had this uh, Boeing uh, plaque, and it's actually called a data plate. And it is the oldest known data plate that the man um, said he had ever seen, the curator at the museum. He told me that he would like to have it for his collection, but he could give me no value. And uh, I really have no idea what it could be worth. That's going to be tough. Uh, I'll have to admit to you. Um, what I would have you gone online and Googled or done anything to try to figure out the value? I have. I can't even find anything remotely like it. Okay. Um, and uh, this probably isn't the best time to get into a lot of detail about it, but if you could take some pictures of it and email them in. Uh, here, they will make sure that I get them, and I will gladly spend a little bit of time looking into it for you. That's a that's a very narrow area of specialty, um, but the fact that the gentleman at the museum was interested to me is encouraging. So I think it would it would be well worth spending a little time on trying to figure out the value. We've received well, a number. Go ahead. What were we going to say? Well, thank you very much. I had All sent right. in an email just a okay. little bit ago, so okay. they should have one. I'll, I'll f forward it to them then. Thank you very much. In fact, I wanted to ask you about that, Dave. We have received a number of emails. Can I just forward those to you? Yeah, I have a few here already that um, Right. We, can... we, we won't be able to get to a lot no. of them, but uh, some of those that we don't get to. In fact, let's try one right now. Tracy, she has a decanter. Uh, we, right. just, we just did the decanter. No, this is another decanter. Another decanter. Okay. Good. No, no, you're right. You're right. That's the same one. That's the same one. I'm sorry. Hey, folks, this is our first time right. together. So Actually, I think it's going pretty swimmingly well. Uh, okay. How about Julie from Mechanicsburg? Okay. Do you have Julie? Julie has uh, vases. Which number is that? Yeah, I got Three. it. Oh, Van Briggle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. These are vases of Van Briggle purchased by my grandparents around 1922. I have several other pieces in the same pattern. The print is by Donna Beth Jones titled Flower Cart, Jackson Square. I purchased it in another one titled Old Bourbon Street Homes at a yard sale 10 years ago for a dollar each. Did she get a bargain? Uh, she did, and in fact, the uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, the uh, Van Briggle first. Uh, Artemis Van Briggle was actually a uh, his pottery is considered art pottery, 
And back in the late 19th century, up and through uh, even the 1950s, uh, art pottery was something that was was highly collected, made by many companies. Uh, some of the art pottery names that are known a little bit more than, than Van Brigo would be Roseville, Weller, those sorts of things. Uh, and apparently, uh, Mr. Van Brigo developed some an illness and had to move out west to Colorado Springs. And so he moved out there, I believe it might have been in the, the early 20s, late 20s, I don't know the exact dates. But he moved out there and opened a pottery out there. So most of his pots are, are uh, or vases um, are noted with Colorado Springs, Colorado. They range in all kinds of values. You have to keep in mind the pottery out there, I th- they may still be open. Uh, I know they were open as, as long as uh, 20 years ago or so, uh, and people would go out there on vacation and bring back some, some Van Briggle pottery. And uh, some of his early stuff from the teens and the 20s can be worth thousands, many thousands. Uh, the newer stuff is usually worth, you know, 50 to to $100. The pieces I'm looking at here uh, from the 20s, I believe we said. Yes, 1922. Uh, 22. Uh, you're probably looking at anywhere from four to 600 500 for the large one, and then, you know, uh, maybe 100 or two for the smaller ones. Let's go to Jeannie in Lancaster. Jeannie, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. I I have um, the Charter and Acts of Assembly of the Province of Pennsylvania. I have only volume one of two volumes, but um, it was printed in Philadelphia by Peter Miller Corporation, and uh, some of the pages are missing, but the only person, I took it to a number of places, but there was only one fellow who um, was really forthcoming with any information, and this was like in 1994. And uh, he said that it was it would be an odd value of the odd volume volume which was lacking some pages at that point was around 250. But he said it was no copies had been sold at auction in over 20 years, and that was in 1994. Evidently, they're they're rather rare. But it it's um, 17 uh, the the title and the laws of the said province. Um, in the year 1700. It's like sewn with rope. And I, I keep it in one of the plastic bags that he gave me to try and keep it safe, but it's deteriorating, and I, I would love to know, one, what it's worth, and where I can take it so that it would be preserved. So this is the charter of the acts of the Assembly <laughs> of the Province of Pennsylvania from yes, the 1700s. Yes, and it took me a while to figure out that the S looks like S when I first looked at this a number of years ago. Um, it's it's really really interesting, and the, a bishop's name is crossed out at the top. So I believe that it probably belonged to him before um, my relative got a hold of it. We think okay. Dave. Well, uh, you know, books can be challenging because they have uh, are often reprinted. So uh, when 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 you have something that old, uh, it could well have been a reprinted book from you know the mid eighteen hundreds, mid nineteen hundreds, that sort of thing. Um, the source that we use to research books, for the most part, is abe.com, www.abe.com. Uh, and if you go on there and put the title in, there's a, there's a high likelihood that you will find someone somewhere, because there's literally millions of books on there and thousands of book dealers that might have a similar one. Um, if you cannot find anything there, you could also, uh, of course, Google it, or you could send a picture in here, and then we can take a look at it. Uh, because I would love to be able to figure out how to set a picture because those other things that you have suggested I have done and people have 
giving me those ideas over the, the and years. And it went nowhere. Um, yeah. The, so, the other, yeah, the, it's, the it's last, I, the last idea. I don't, I don't know where you're located, but you might not uh, want to hesitate to take it into the state museum uh, and have them take a look at it because they're very friendly over there and they see part of their mission as as reaching out. Uh, one thing I will tell you, though, when you deal with musician um, musicians, when you deal with <laughs> museum <laughs> folks, musicians too, probably, but uh, <laughs> museum folks. They are very focused on the historic implications and preservation of objects. Yeah. They, do, they are not interested in talking about values. And, in fact, in some instances, when you ask them if they know values, they, they take it very poorly. So I, I will just advise you that they will help you identify and, and, in a sense, authenticate or at least give you an opinion about its, whether it's real but chances are they're, they're not going to give you a value. So, Hey, Jeannie, thank you very much for your call, Dave. We only have a couple minutes left. And okay. I wanted to, I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of people out there listening today saying, you know what, I have this thing in my closet that I've been wondering about for years. You know, maybe we've gotten some people curious today. What can our listeners do if they want to do some research on their own, maybe about the history, maybe about the value? Okay. Well, you know, one of the first things, and I, I mentioned Google a couple times, and it sounds like Google, well, everybody Googles things, but uh, a lot of times it's how you use Google that can be helpful or not so helpful. One of the things that we do a lot of is when we put things in Google, we uh, figure out what it is and then put the object name in there. Um, or if we're not sure, then we go to an image search and look it up under image search. You can also take pictures and put the actual image in the Google box. There's a way to do that uh, so that it will look for the image of whatever you have. That's very helpful. And often that will lead you somewhere. But uh, I can tell you that we've spent many hours sometimes looking for things. One thing I would caution people against is that uh, if they have something and they're looking to eBay as far as valuation, Make absolute sure that it has sold on eBay and that it's just not listed on eBay for a certain price. We have many visitors to our company that come in and say, well, gee, I have this, you know, I have this vase here and it's on eBay for $500. And we look and we see that, well, no one's buying it for $500. In fact, oh, here's one that sold for $25. Right. So it's very important to make that differentiation. Uh, the other thing is, you know, even though books in a way have become somewhat less attractive than they were years ago, Never hesitate to go to the library, the bookstore, look through books. There's some general antique guides. Miller's an Annual Antique Guide is one uh, that is, uh, has lots of pictures, and you can browse through that and see what you want. The other thing is go to antique shows. Uh, nothing better than going to an antique show to get educated. Then there's lots of great antique shows in this region. Spend an afternoon or a morning and go over and check stuff out. David Cordier is president and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals. That was a lot of fun, Dave. Oh, thank you for having I, me. I, I, I think if you're willing, we can do this again sometime. I'd like that. Okay. And I will forward those emails that, they, that we didn't get to on the air, forward them to you as well. So okay. We'll Very get good. Uh, some more listeners some ideas as well. Coming up on Monday's show, we're going to be talking about guns. That's Monday's program, so be sure to tune in. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. 
Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.